Hello, hello, hello. Hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome to the BAP podcast. The British Association of Psychopharmacology are celebrating their 50th anniversary in 2024, and we'll be joining them in Birmingham for their annual summer meeting, which takes place from the 21st to the 24th of July. I'm Andre from The Mental Health, and I'll be covering the event this year with my colleague Flo Martin. Flo will be live tweeting from The Mental Health using the hashtag BAP2024, and I'll be making videos in Birmingham to share online as part of our live coverage. And I'm also recording these podcast interviews in the run-up to the event. I'm really looking forward to interviewing the fantastic lineup of international speakers, covering everything from ADHD to cosmetic psychopharmacology. In this podcast, we're going to hear from Professor John Crystal, MD, who's best known for leading the discovery of the rapid antidepressant effects of ketamine. His talk at the conference is entitled Linking Depression Pathophysiology to the Mechanism of Action of Ketamine and Next Generation Treatments. I spoke to him on the 19th of February 2024 and he started by explaining how he got into studying ketamine in the first place. Our chat lasts for about 15 minutes so have a listen now and I'll see you at the end. My name is John Crystal. I'm a professor and chair of psychiatry at Yale University. I've been at Yale my entire professional career. I arrived from medical school 44 years ago. <laughs> so I got into studying ketamine because early in my career, I recognized that nearly the entire research effort in psychiatry was devoted to studying very simple systems in the brain, what we call the monoamine systems that utilize transmitters that many people are familiar with, serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. 95% of the effort in psychiatry research was devoted to 2% of the signaling in the brain. And I realized that the biology of psychiatric disorders probably involve the remaining 95% of the signaling in the brain which involves the main excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain, which is glutamate, and the main inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain, which is GABA. And so I started using ketamine as a tool to probe the connection between the glutamate system and cognition and behavior. I started that work in the late 1980s. And it was initially focused on schizophrenia and psychosis. But in the mid-90s, we decided to study depression with the same idea that the serotonin system, which had been studied, and norepinephrine system, which had been studied in relation to the biology of the depression, was undoubtedly relevant to how our standard antidepressants, SSRIs, SNRIs, the medications most people would be familiar with. These systems are undoubtedly critical to how those medications work. But we could deplete, my colleague Dennis Charney, could deplete these systems. We could deplete norepinephrine and serotonin and dopamine at the same time in healthy people without getting them depressed. And that made us think that perhaps these other systems in the brain might be relevant to the biology of depression. And so we wanted to use ketamine to probe that biology. And what we found was this remarkable rapid 
antidepressant effect of ketamine in the depressed patients. And ever since then, we've been trying to understand how it works, who it's good for, are there ways to improve upon it, et cetera. Yeah. And I guess it was about 20 years ago that you published the first placebo-controlled double-blind trial of ketamine for depression. So looking back over 20 years, are you happy with the progress that's been made since then? All we really care about is helping people to get better. And there are so many times in a scientific career where you make a discovery that you think might eventually lead to something where it just turns into a dead end. In this case, what has been striking, powerful, is how studying ketamine was like a loose thread in a garment that's unraveling the more people explore it. And the impact is growing and people are benefiting. And that's been incredibly rewarding. And I guess it's a different sort of treatment in some ways, isn't it? Because I guess if you look at what we offer people frontline for depression, antidepressants, talking treatments, exercise, those sorts of interventions, and then the things that we offer maybe for more severe and enduring depression, ECT, maybe psychedelics with psychotherapy is a new kind of avenue. Ketamine is there in that sort of space, isn't it? Where it's a kind of opening the door and then being supported by other kind of psychological treatments. Can you give us a flavor of what the intervention is and who it's aimed at? Sure. I think the way you characterized it is exactly right, which is ketamine is an intervention that can be embedded in an ongoing treatment. And so people who have been in treatment for depression and related conditions and have severe and unremitting symptoms, even though they have not responded to the standard antidepressant medications, they may still respond to ketamine. And that's been one of the very striking things. The data that have come in are really quite impressive. The typical thing to do when a person doesn't respond to an antidepressant medication is to add another medication. And the most commonly added medication is from the class of antipsychotic medication. And a recent study suggests that ketamine is about twice as effective as adding an antipsychotic medication to produce improvement. When people have treatment resistant symptoms and another medication is added, maybe they have a 10 to 20% chance of uh, having a clinical response. With ketamine or esketamine, they have more like a 50 to 70% chance of having a clinical response. And that's a huge difference because by the time people develop these treatment-resistant symptoms, they've tried a couple of different antidepressants, they haven't quite worked. They get very discouraged and hopeless about getting better and having the opportunity to get ketamine uh, really has opened up new avenues of hope. One of the other treatments that you mentioned, electroconvulsive therapy, new data shows that ketamine and electroconvulsive therapy are similarly effective for treatment-resistant depression symptoms. But ketamine and esketamine are a much less invasive procedure, easier to apply in America, Ketamine and esketamine are becoming more accessible than electroconvulsive therapy, which has been offered at a declining number of medical centers. The gold standard of electroconvulsive therapy has been getting harder and harder to get. 
and that gap is being filled by ketamine and esketamine. And I guess some of those other interventions that you're comparing it to, antipsychotics, ECT, have well-documented side effects. What's the side effects profile of these newer drugs? So ketamine and esketamine have the effects uh, that you have while the drug is being administered. You can get uh, perception changes that are sometimes called dissociation symptoms. You can get a headache. You can have a transient increase in your blood pressure. You can might get nauseous. You might even vomit. Some people have vomited when after they get ketamine. And we can manage all of those side effects, at least by supporting people, the dissociative symptoms are tolerable. We have people get their blood pressure under control before they start ketamine or esketamine treatment. We can give a medication to manage the nausea. At the moment, the only side effect that's really concerning that we can't manage is abuse liability. And so we do not want people to get ketamine or esketamine to take home because we're finding that people may be misusing a ketamine that they take home. And so in the United States, anyway, ketamine and esketamine administration per the Food and Drug Administration regulations called REMS are limited to clinic setting. I'm just trying to picture from an individual perspective, let's say I'm a man in my 50s and I've had depression for the last 30 years and I get episodes every now and again. It might be that I'm on antipsychotics and an antidepressant for good. It might be that I go back and have courses of ECT from time to time when I have a severe episode. How would it work with a ketamine intervention? Is it just a one-off from time to time? How does it link in with everything else? In some ways, the profile of ketamine treatment is most similar to electroconvulsive therapy, which is that it started relatively frequently, twice a week, and then tapered down gradually trying to prevent the depression symptoms from recurring. And there are some people with electroconvulsive therapy like ketamine or esketamine that are just treated with it for a few months and that's it. But a half or even more of patients treated with ketamine or esketamine will be on it long-term. And one of the very striking things that's been observed with ketamine, but which has also been observed for electroconvulsive therapy is that they not only decrease the mortality associated with suicide, in other words, they re reduce the chance of dying by suicide, but ketamine and esketamine were just shown to reduce all-cause mortality. What that means is that depression is bad for you. We know it feels bad, but it's bad for your health. It's associated with inflammation in the body, particularly these severe kinds of depression. It can worsen your heart disease. It can worsen your kidney disease, your respiratory illness, other medical illnesses. And so depression without suicide shortens lifespan, expected lifespan by five to 10 years. And ketamine and esketamine address that more effectively than standard antidepressants. So it not only reduces all-cause mortality with regard to being not treated, it reduces all-cause mortality in comparison to historical data when people are treated with standard antidepressant medications. So this is really a, a profound kind of treatment. The other thing that I found very striking with the esketamine data, it has to do with relapse. I think one of the most discouraging parts about depression treatment 
as a doctor prescribing medications or as a person getting treatment is the that we can go through many different medication combinations to find the one that produces a good clinical response that can take a year or even more. And then within a few months, sometimes these people will relapse. Their depression will come back. And that's very dis disheartening. I'm always reminded of the story about Virginia Woolf, who committed suicide, not because she was depressed, but because she could feel the depression coming back after a period of when she was in remission. Ketamine and esketamine in long-term treatment seem about twice as effective in preventing relapse uh, compared to standard medication, which to me as a treater is also an important piece of data that people don't pay much attention to. So I'm wondering finally what the perspective on this whole field is from commissioners of services, from guideline developers, because obviously we have an evidence base here, as you've referred to a few times, this is an effective treatment. It's safe, certainly in the short term. Do we have that kind of long-term safety data? So the data that I was referring to in that comparison, the average duration of treatment was 42 months. So that's pretty long-term as these things go. Yeah. So what's the barrier then to widening access to this? Or is it just that actually this is only going to be for quite a small proportion of people who get depression? There are always many different barriers. One barrier is psychological, which is that doctors have to decide they want to deliver the treatment. Patients have to decide they're willing to give it a try. And then there are practical barriers, which is that the classic psychiatry equipment involved a comfy chair and a pad of paper. And this requires having a, a clinic space uh, where you're delivering treatments, ketamine or esketamine, or perhaps in the future, other treatments like you mentioned psychedelics and potentially MDMA. And these treatments like ECT are interventions. They require a doctor or a medical staff to be prepared to deliver a medication that has a response and to monitor the patient through it and that transition of doctors and practices setting up this resource turned out to be one of the barriers to access. And what I've been told in the States is that they've already seen a tenfold increase in the number of practices that are able to deliver this. And the rate of expansion of these resources seems to be growing very rapidly. So not only psychiatrists delivering this as a treatment, but there are clinics where the ketamine or esketamine is provided by anesthesiologists, pain doctors, other kinds of physicians, but also nurse anesthetists, advanced practice nurses. I think that the distribution or access to these medications will grow significantly. And the more data that we have with these medications, I think continues to support broader prescription for treatment-resistant symptoms as opposed to more narrow. In the trial that compared ketamine to one of the antipsychotic medications that was published in the New England Journal last year, the dropout rate due to side effects was higher with the antipsychotic medications than it was to the esketamine. And that may be related to the fact that when you're getting these treatments, the medicine's only in your body for an hour or so. 
once every two weeks, if you're taking it on a long-term basis, twice a week at the beginning, but the frequency goes down over time. And maybe there's something about that enhances tolerability. In other words, you're not waking up tired every morning or having other side effects every day. You have your side effects, but they're limited to a relatively short period of time. And you're supported during that. And you set aside the time for those side effects so that they're not interfering with your uh, life so much. I'm just imagining people who are going to come to the conference in Birmingham, the BAP annual conference in a few months' time. Tell us why people should come along and listen to your keynote talk. What I'm going to be talking about is how the mechanisms through which ketamine work link up with the biology of depression. I'll be talking about some really interesting research that suggests that we're tapping into brain resilience mechanisms when we give a dose of ketamine. And I'll also be talking about the next generation of ketamine-like treatment, uh, ways that we may be able to enhance the effectiveness of ketamine by combining it with certain psychotherapies or uh, even novel medications. Big thanks to John Crystal for that whistle-stop tour of his work. I'm really looking forward to hearing more from him in Birmingham on Wednesday the 24th of July. And if you want to join in person, go to bap.org.uk now and register your place. There's going to be more podcasts coming up in this BAP 2024 series, so subscribe now to The Mental Elf where you get your pods, whether that's Apple or Spotify or YouTube or wherever else. Click that subscribe button and you won't miss an episode. Okay, that's it for now. This is Andre signing out. I'll see you next time.